Hamlet Podcast, Episode 8. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's King Lear with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. Last time, I ended with the promise that Cordelia was about to speak. She hasn't spoken for over a hundred lines, not since Lear lost his temper and Kent spoke up on her behalf. Rather interestingly, the quiet confidence and determination she had earlier is all but gone. Her speech is messy and a bit all over the place. She says, I yet beseech your majesty, if for I want that glib and oily art to speak and purpose not, since what I well intend I'll do it before I speak, that you make known it is no vicious blot, murder or foulness, no unchaste action or dishonoured step that hath deprived me of your grace and favour. But even for want of that for which I am richer, a still soliciting eye and such a tongue as I am glad I have not, though not to have it hath lost me in your liking. Her thoughts are a little jumbled. Shakespeare seems to be building her understandable distress into the fabric of the language itself. The King of France has just finished a fairly measured speech in which he wonders at the change in Cordelia's fortunes. Now she herself is trying to make a case to her father. She is begging Lear to make it known that her fall from favour was because of something she lacked rather than something she did. But the clauses are extremely jumbled, so it's hard to follow on the page. She begins with half her plea. I yet beseech your majesty. But then she breaks off to comment that she doesn't have the skill, the glib and oily art, to say things she doesn't mean. To speak and purpose not is to speak without sincerity. Cordelia is saying that she herself prefers to act before she speaks, since it's an easier way of showing her good intent. Since what I well intend, I'll do it before I speak. Having said this, she gets back to her plea, beseeching her father to make it known that it is no vicious blot, murder or foulness, no unchaste action or dishonoured step that hath deprived me of your grace and favour. It's quite a bleak list of reasons one might fall from royal favour. A vicious blot is a stain caused or left by vice. Murder, foulness, unchaste action and dishonourable steps all hint at various kinds of deadly sins, from amorality to treason. Cordelia has, of course, done nothing of the sort, but has still fallen foul and is deprived of Lear's grace and favour. The idea of quote-unquote grace and favour is interesting. I was looking it up to see if, perhaps, this line of King Lear was the origin of the English royal custom of grace and favour apartments, which are residences owned by the Crown and granted to various dignitaries, I can't quite say that it's Shakespeare that invented it, because I also found the phrase in the book of Esther in the King James Version of the Bible. And this is far more interesting for Cordelia if she, or Shakespeare, is quoting it. From the book of Esther. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, 
so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen. It's kind of brilliant. Lear might have made Cordelia queen, or at least co-regent with her sisters, but she has been instead cast out. If Cordelia is quoting that passage from the Bible, it's all the more knowing and heartbreaking, even in the background of the audience's minds. Regardless, she carries on. Having reminded Lear of all that she has not done and what she has lost, she now describes what she did not have in the first place. So much of this drama is rooted around the word nothing. I suppose it's interesting that she's so focused on what she cannot say, what she has not done, and now what she has not in the first place. But even for want of that for which I am richer, a still soliciting eye and such a tongue as I am glad I have not, though not to have it, hath lost me in your liking. Cordelia is insisting that she has lost Lear's affection because of something she does not have, that glib and oily art, even though not having it makes her a better person. She also does not have a greedy eye. Still soliciting implies one that is always looking for something. And she is glad she doesn't have a tongue like her sisters have that can spew flattery and lies so easily, even though not having such things has lost her her father's love. All this is a complicated speech for an actor, but it is effective. Lear all but interrupts. In the quarto he says go to, go to before what follows, all but telling her to shut up. And he continues, Better thou hadst not been born than not to have pleased me better. It's pretty awful of him to be saying that he'd rather Cordelia had never been born than to have disappointed him like this. Again, the King of France intervenes. Is it but this, a tardiness in nature, which often leaves the history unspoke that it intends to do? My Lord of Burgundy, what say you to the lady? Love's not love when it is mingled with regards that stand aloof from the entire point. Will you have her? She is herself a dowry. France is lightly attempting to explain away Cordelia's hesitancy. He's suggesting that she's cautious or tardy in nature, preferring to communicate by actions than merely by talking about things. As we shall see, the play proves very much that actions speak louder than words. Perhaps it's Cordelia's nature to show her love and leave its history unspoke. Now France, a real gentleman, asks Burgundy what he has to say to the lady. Sounding very much like Sonnet 116, he says that love is not love when it is mingled with other considerations, or regards. He's obliquely saying that he loves Cordelia, and that love is the entire point. Burgundy, he's hinting, is more interested in the property attached, and that this interest stands aloof from any feelings he has for Cordelia. Sir France comes right out and asks him, will you have her? And while it's a little awkward to be talking about her rather than to her, he insists that Cordelia is a prize, and a reward all in and of herself. She is herself a dowry. 
despite France having asked him what he has to say to the lady, Burgundy instead speaks to her father. Royal Lear Give but that portion which yourself proposed, and here I take Cordelia by the hand, Duchess of Burgundy. He's telling King Lear that if Cordelia comes with the dowry that was originally promised, he will marry her immediately and make her Duchess of Burgundy. But Lear remains absolute. Nothing. I have sworn. I am firm. It's cruel of him to say nothing all over again. She's getting nothing because nothing comes from her having said nothing. He is sworn and standing firm, and so Burgundy has no choice, and only now does he address Cordelia, saying, I am sorry, then, you have so lost a father that you must lose a husband. I don't know if there's any genuine sympathy here, or if he's being very patronising. I'm sorry that you have so destroyed your relationship with your father that you must also lose a catch like me. However you feel about Burgundy, this is his last line in the play. Cordelia somehow finds the grace to say, Peace be with Burgundy, since that respects of fortune are his love, I shall not be his wife. The second half of the line is wittier rather than gracious, but it's pleasing to hear her get the dig in, since Burgundy is more interested in enlarging his fortune than marrying for love. She will not be his wife. Now that the field is clear, the King of France speaks to Cordelia again. Fairest Cordelia, that art most rich being poor, most choice forsaken, and most loved despised, thee and thy virtues here I seize upon, be it lawful, I take up what's cast away. Gods, gods, tis strange that from their coldest neglect my love should kindle to inflamed respect. Thy dowerless daughter, king, thrown to my chance, is queen of us, of ours, and our fair France. Not all the dukes of waterish Burgundy can buy this unprized, precious maid of me. Bid them farewell, Cordelia, though unkind. Thou losest here a better where to find. Given just how nasty her father has been, it's very charming that the King of France is so kind to Cordelia. He clearly loves her a great deal, and not just for her now-lost dowry. He finds her beautiful, or fair, and considers her rich in all good things, despite her newfound poverty. His whole speech is full of beautiful antitheses. Most choice, forsaken, and most loved, despised. He's consoling her insisting that he is taking her and will love her even more so now that she's been forsaken and despised by her father. He says that he will take her and her virtues. He's happy to rescue what's been thrown away. And then he seems to up the ante by switching into rhyming couplets for the rest of his speech. He now acknowledges the gods to formalise his proposal. France is interested that out of their cold neglect of this girl, he has fallen evermore in love with her. Love and neglect is another antithesis. Gods, gods, tis strange that from their coldest neglect, 
my love should kindle to inflamed respect. We also have hot and cold going on there. He tells Lear that the daughter he's thrown away and disinherited will now be his queen. Thy dowerless daughter, king, thrown to my chance, is queen of us, of ours, and our fair France. He also gets a parting shot at Burgundy, telling him he'll never marry her now. Not all the dukes of waterish Burgundy can buy this unprized precious maid of me. Cordelia is unprized because Lear has cut her off. Remember, there's no dowry now. But to him, she's a precious jewel. Having acknowledged the gods, her father and his rival, France now addresses Cordelia. Bid them farewell, Cordelia, though unkind. Thou losest here a better where to find. Shakespeare often balances here and where as a neat antithesis. He's telling Cordelia that they'll leave this unkind place here and find somewhere better. If played right, the King of France is one of the most charming princes and one of the best husbands in all of Shakespeare. Perhaps he isn't terribly interesting, but he's a pillar of kindness in a play full of very unkind people. Lear isn't especially impressed, but even in his angry state he knows that he should probably be civil to another king. He answers also in rhyming couplets, as these are going to lead him to his exit. Thou hast her, France, let her be thine, for we have no such daughter, nor shall ever see that face of hers again. Therefore be gone, without our grace, our love, our benison. Come, noble Burgundy. This scene should have been a very special afternoon for Cordelia. She was to have been granted a huge share of the kingdom as a dowry and been betrothed to one of the two most powerful men on the continent. Instead, as we've seen, it's all gone sour and Lear is scoffing that if France really wants her, he can have her. Thou hast her, France. Let her be thine. He repeats his rejection of his sometime daughter. For we have no such daughter, nor shall ever see that face of hers again. It's all terribly permanent for Cordelia. Lear sends her away now with her new husband. Therefore be gone, without our grace, our love, our benison. The grace and favour are long gone, but so is his love, he's saying, and his benison, his blessing. Of course, people only behave this angrily and hatefully when they are very hurt and are just as full of love as of hatred. Lear cannot quite deal with this, mind you, and so he storms out of the room, and as a final insult, he takes Burgundy with him. Come, noble Burgundy, he says, and out he goes, with almost everyone except France, Cordelia, and her two sisters. What follows is a fascinating chance to see how the three women in Lear's life all respond to this shocking scene. But you know very well that we're going to be saving that for the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll speak to you next time.